disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possessions, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, he, he makes this statement. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to, to rebuild that house, and at first, perhaps you, you can understand what he's doing. He, he's getting the drains right, and he's stopping the leaks in, in the roof and so on, and you knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably, and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here and putting on an extra floor there, running up towers and making courtyards, you thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. So as Peter is writing to the churches up here in, in that Asia Minor area, he, he's, he's writing to those in his generation. He's also writing something to us today that we need to understand about this building project that God has going on. He wants us to know that God is making us into a, a living and a holy place for himself to reside in. And he's going to take up his residency there through his Holy Spirit. And this morning, I want us to take a look at what it needs to be done to build our lives into the kinds of people that he has created us to be. Just as with any building project, there are a few things that you need to have done first. Well, the first thing is this. You need to prep the site. I mean, anytime, you, anytime you're going to build somewhere, you need to go and look at the lay of the land and, and decide what, what's happening there. And so he says here in verses 1 through 3, you need to put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So there's a site survey that needs to be done. That's just the way it is. You look at it and you say, well, that little bit of a rise over there needs to be leveled out. Maybe we need to solidify this area here because it's, it's kind of loose and, and, and the house would shift there. So you, you have to come in and do your site survey, and it requires an honest evaluation of that. And so when we look at our lives as becoming a house in which God is going to build, we have to evaluate ourselves too. We have to do this honest self-evaluation of what needs to be addressed to make life ready for Him. So Paul writes to the church in Corinth in the second letter, he says in verse 13, chapter 13, verses 5 through 6, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize that about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test, I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. So Paul says to the church of Corinth, you need to do some self-evaluation here and look to see whether or not you're lining yourself up right with Christ. And if not, maybe we've got some adjustment that needs to take place. And then he also writes to the church at Galatian. He says in Galatians 6, 4, and 5, but, each one, but let each one test his own work, 
And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. All these are building terminologies. We know that when something heaven comes into a place, it's going to have to bear the load of what is there. And so as, as we grow into the house of God, we've got to make sure that the foundation we're built upon is, is proper. We need to make sure that it, the structure is going to be solid enough so that when he comes in, it's not going to fall apart. So we need to have this removal of debris and other hindrances and obstacles that are in the way. Maybe it means you need to get out there with your, your big dozer and just level out all the trees and just clear them out so you can have this beautiful spot in the middle of the woods where you can build your house. I don't know what it's going to take, but we need to, to get rid of all the things. There may be a big boulder in the middle that you, you've just got to dig up and, and put someplace else. But the same is true about our lives. Note the word all he uses here in this first verse. It occurs three times. All right? He says perhaps he's designated three kinds of sins that we ought to put away, these, these obstacles that are in the way of God taking up his residency in us as a house. So we need to put away malice, deceit, and slander. But deceit is shown with using the other words hypocrisy and, and, and also envy. And, and the repeat of all goes, goes to where we have no room for any exceptions. We need to get rid of everything. I remember as a child growing up and we were doing some work out in the fields and, and my grandfather would say, you need to go pick up all the rocks. All the rocks? Yeah, all the rocks. How many rocks are in a field? What's amazing is you, you pick them up this year and somehow they're back the next year. I don't get it. But you've got to get rid of all this. And so he says, get rid of all malice. I mean, this word, depending on its context, can be a, a, a general word for all kinds of wickedness or maybe even a special kind of, of evil. And in this instance, the word malice is the desire to get even when someone hurts you or, or takes advantage of you. The problem is we often want to take it to the next level of meanness, don't we? I'm going to do one up on you because you did this to me. But he says you've got to get rid of all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy. I mean, in, in, in its proper order here, this word that is translated deceit is a word that is used for fishing, in which we did yesterday out at the, uh, the Matthews farm. Because what you do, it's, it's this word that is also used as bait. All right? So it's used to, to deceive or use trickery to get that fish on there or to get that bear in the trap or to get that man to do something that he ought not do. A good example of this, classic example, is the Trojan horse. Remember that story? It was an empty horse that the soldiers went up in and as a gift. Oh, what a wonderful gift. Wrong. So what we're looking at here is this, this conscious decision to deceive others in order to get something for ourselves. So he says we've got to get rid of all deceit, all of it. Hypocrisy is, is a theatrical term, and, and what it means is a hypocrite is an actor who's playing a part to influence his audience, pretending to be somebody he's not in order that they might believe what he's saying. So... The hypocrite must conceal his true motives and speak words which are very different from his real feelings. So you fudge things a little bit, right? But it gets what you want. Envy is hatred. 
It's, a, it's that burning dis- discontent or unhappiness towards other people because they've got something that you don't have. And it grows into you with this covetous feeling, which is against one of the Ten Commandments. And as a result of that, we, we, we want something that somebody else has, and we will do anything to possess it. It's hard to be envious of somebody else and to earnestly love that person because you want what they've got to their demise. Instead, envy is often the root of deceit and hypocrisy and other sins. In fact, envy will destroy the possibility of brotherly love. If you're jealous and you're envious of what they have, you're never going to really love them because you want what they've got. You remember that time when, when James and John were asking Jesus about the positions of those seated around him when he enters into his kingdom? And one wanted to sit on his right and the other one on his left because those are positions of power. And we see that the other disciples heard about that conversation and it didn't go over very well, did it? They were envious, they were jealous, they were mad and got into a bunch of disputing arguments over and over again with each other because of this problem that they had. The ends you see underneath the service and even at the Last Supper when Jesus is trying to convey to them His love and His sacrifice for them, what are the boys doing? They're arguing about who gets to sit at His right and His left. Who's going to become greatest in the kingdom of God? He says, we need to remove all slander. That's an interesting word that's used, we've translated slander. Literally, it means back talk. But 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 the understanding of it, it conveys a result of that has that envy connected with it. In, in classical Greek writings, that word is used, and it means to run down or to disparage somebody. And it's the habit of, of denigration of other people to make them look bad in order that you might look good in their presence. I mean, it, it's, it's not just that, but it's, it's too easy to make insinuations about somebody and letting the others then come to their own conclusion about how bad that person is, right? But I really didn't say it, you know. But that's what he says. We're slandering people. We're, we're tearing down their character, their identity, in a way that makes me look good. But we've got to get rid of that. And so once we've prepped the site, we've done our survey, we've, we begin to remove all the debris, then the next thing is we need to level and stabilize the foundation there so that it's going to be strong. And, and knowing what is required to enable the infrastructure to withstand things, Jesus spoke, speaks about two men who built their houses. One man built his house on a rock. And when the storm came and the, and the winds blew and the waters rose against it, the house after the storm stood But another man built his house on the sand, and his end result was a little bit different because when the storm blew against it and the rains fell and the waters rose, a foundation disappeared underneath the house and it came crashing down. I remember that when our son was a toddler, just a little boy growing up, we had some concerns about him. He wouldn't eat. He didn't like things. I mean, you try this baby food, that baby food, you try whatever. He just was extremely picky about eating, and all he wanted was milk. Milk, milk, milk. So we went to the pediatrician. We said, what are we going to do? He doesn't want to eat food. 
And the doctor said, that's okay. As long as he is drinking milk, he's going to have all the nutrients that he needs to survive and to grow and to be strong. Eventually he'll eat. Well, eventually he has begun to eat, you know? But we were concerned about the foundation of his life and what, what was building, a, how, how is he going to be, how is he going to grow, how is he going to mature if he doesn't get the right nutrients in. But the foundation of milk is important. And we understand that a child needs milk is the most important thing that they need. So right at the beginning of birth, God has provided a unique way for them to receive the sustenance, the foundation for their life to grow. Now, Peter ties this next section into his letter with, with something he said earlier about being born again in, in verse 23 of chapter 1. So he says, like newborn infants, we should have this longing for pure spiritual milk. And if you've ever had a longing, I mean, it's this intense desire. The Bible tells us in the book of Songs, it's like a deer that's panting for water in the heat of the day. Many of us were panting through water this weekend, weren't we? When the temperatures began to rise and I'm foolish and I'm out working in yards and sweating everything out. And then when you realize I'm not sweating anymore, something's wrong. I need water. And so this important thing of this longing for pure spiritual milk, it, it, it gives us this indication. Kenneth Wiest in his commentary on, on 1 Peter, he says, a healthy infant is a hungry infant. A spiritually healthy Christian is a hungry Christian. Jesus said we're supposed to hunger and thirst after righteousness, correct? So the translation that the English Standard Version says that they should long for pure spiritual milk is an effort to translate this unique phrase here in the Greek language, and it's difficult to translate it because there is no equivalent word in the English language to compare it. We just don't have a word to say this word means this. It's not there. And so through the years they've tried to give an answer by giving the word spiritual or uh, reasonable. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, is the only other time that this word is used. All right, so let me kind of read Romans 12, 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is your spiritual worship. In Romans, it's, it's used in the service to be rendered by the believers who are presenting their bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. The sacrifice is also to be this reasonable, this intelligent gift connected with the spirituality of the individual. And so what he's saying is that the sacrifice is in contrast to the sacrifices that are offered in their regular cultic rituals of sacrifice. There's something different. The presentation is to be in accordance with the spiritual intelligence of those who are the new creatures of God who are sacrificing themselves, which is a unique thing. All right? So in, in this pre preceding context, Peter has been talking about the word of the Lord that abides forever and it's lasting and it's never going to go anything anywhere because it's going to always be there. And then it's being instrumental in the conversion. And now perhaps he's indicating is that, that that same inspired word of God which is preached to you, he says, if we hungrily desire it as Christians, would be instrumental in our spiritual growth so that we can sacrifice ourselves as our spiritual, reasonable, intelligent act of worship. Peter's saying that the craving for pure spiritual milk 
the unadulterated Word of God, so there's nothing that's in it. It is, it is perfect. It is cleansed. It's going to produce this continual growth within us and to mature us into the people that we ought to be so that we can receive our full inheritance when Jesus returns. So the Word of God is powerful. It's effective. It's living and it's active. And it is abiding forever, and it's never going to disappear. And it has power to change us from the inside out. Well, second, as you're building your house, you need to go to the store and and select the materials that you're going to use. Now, some of you like to walk past the lumber aisle right now because lumber prices are scary, all right? But we know what we've got to do. We've got to get certain things to build. So he says to us in verses 4 through 8, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, a cornerstone, a chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey that word which is abiding, which is everlasting, which is life-giving, which has everything about it. And they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So what do we have to do here? We've got to determine the supplies that we're going to need in our house. So do you want cheap or do you want quality? Inferior or superior products as we build our lives upon Christ. All right? I, I think if money is not an option and you can have anything you want, I think most of us would say, give me the good stuff. Let me walk past the inferior products and take me to the stuff that you really are saving for those that are special people. All right? And so that's what he wants us to do. And so that's what Dr. LeBron Lackey and his uncle Russell King did when they built their vacation house down in Mexican Beach, Florida. All right. Now, now they knew that that area would was possibly have a potential for a hurricane. And so as they were building it, they decided that they were going to follow the, the Florida hurricane codes to build their house. But they even went beyond the Florida codes and did some extra things to make sure that their house would be able to sustain a hurricane. So in October of 2018, the houses all around them were utterly destroyed when Hurricane Michael came ashore. But their house sustained the 130-mile-per-hour winds, and it took the beating that a Class 5, Category 5 hurricane could bring to it. And when you look at it, Everything else, but their house, well, that looks good. How? They may have lost windows, but the structure of it is solid. It was going nowhere. It withstood everything. So Dr. Lackey and his uncle, in addition to the one-foot-thick concrete walls, they used 40-foot-tall pilings, which were driven deep into the ground, and steel cables to hold their roof on. They spared no expense. Matter of fact, they estimate that they probably spent about 20% more than the average hurricane code house would have cost. They were building a house that would surely be a standard for others to follow in the years to come. And that's how we should build our house of our life in Christ 
as a standard for others to follow and build, as Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So that we can withstand all the storms that life throws at us because we're representing Christ. So this, this same thing is true about our spiritual life. Peter tells us in verse 4 and 5, he says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Well, as you come to him, that's written in the present tense, and so it says it's a continual thing. As you keep coming to him on a daily basis, these are the things that you should be doing. <clears throat> it indicates this continuous action. It speaks of this voluntary, repeated, <clears throat> habitual coming to believers to the Lord Jesus for his sustenance and for his fellowship. So it speaks to us as drawing near to him so that we can worship and we can offer up our sacrifice and our prayers to Him. Peter is expressing his confidence that even when the storms of persecution come against the church, this church he's writing is going to be able to withstand it. While everything else may fall, the church of Jesus Christ, the people who are Christians, will make it through no matter what. They have been chosen by God, and they are precious to Him. And remember, God is the one who is building it, not us. He's the one who is laying the foundation, stacking each block, each person, each in the church upon one another, making us who He wants us to be. We are simply the building blocks, the living stones that are being used to build His spiritual house, of which Jesus Christ is the cornerstone that living stone that most men are going to reject, we build off of him. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, and he says this in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 19 through 22. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see, this spiritual house is going to be the focal point for the holy priesthood to offer up their spiritual sacrifices to God. We become the temple in which the sacrifices are made. Peter's living stones are both the house and the priest who serve in it, is what he tells us. That word that's translated priesthood, it occurs here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 and verse 9, and it's not found in any other writing, secular or biblical at all. all right? It carries with it the idea of a kingly priesthood, which is something that is total contrast to the priesthood in the Old Testament covenant. So the priesthoods, they are, they are exalted to a moral rank and a freedom which exempts them from any kind of control from anyone else other than God or Christ. We're put in a position of authority against everything in this world because 
we're living as the priests of God. We are a royal priesthood, a holy people, a people that are by God's possession. So Barclay writes in his commentary, he says there are specific characteristics of a priest. The first thing is this, a priest, he's a man who himself has direct access to God. We now, as Christians, have direct access to God. We don't have to go to another priest. We don't have to go someplace else and and pay somebody to stand in our behalf before God. We have that direct access to Him. Barclay also says that He's a go-between for others and God. Kind of like a bridge builder so that people can come to God and then they have the opportunity to stand in His presence as well with accessibility. And finally he says, a priest brings offerings to God. So it is with this Christian priesthood. The sacrifices which Christians offer are spiritual. They're not bloody sacrifices like bulls and lambs and goats. Scripture elsewhere stipulates some of these spiritual sacrifices. So listen, how do we then offer up our sacrifices? What kind of sacrifices? Well, the first one is this. It's prayer, praise, and possessions. It comes out of Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 and 16. Through Him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for others, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Sacrifices might include our bodies as living sacrifices. We read in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, right? So it's, it's also that. But it's also that Gentiles that have been won to Christ on our behalf of evangelizing them, that we're to offer them up. That's what Paul says in Romans 15, verses 15 and 16. He says, but on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God that he says, you're to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly services of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So if we're not offering up bulls and goats in the blood of a lamb, then what do we offer up in this Christian priesthood? Well, we offer up our prayers and our praise and our possessions, the things we have. We offer up to Him our bodies as living sacrifices. We offer up to Him the other people that we're introducing to Christ, and we give them to Him as a sacrifice. So Jesus has opened up a new way for us into the heavenly holy of holies, that we each have the ability, because of our faith in Christ, because of what He has done, we now can stand in the very presence of God, unashamed, without guilt, without fear, because He has provided that way for us. So if I'm going to continue to build my life this way, then I need to follow the architect's designs, right? I need to follow what he wants me to do. And if we're going to get this house built, it's got to be his way. And it makes me wonder, where did Peter get the idea of calling Jesus a living stone? Well, perhaps... It was from Jesus' own words when he used the Old Testament prophecy in Psalm 118, verse 22, when he was speaking about himself to the religious leaders in Matthew 21. He, He said that he is the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Or maybe perhaps Peter was applying the prophecy of Isaiah 28, verse 16, when when he's speaking about Jesus, about being, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, 
a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes in me will not be in haste. Or perhaps there's some reference that Jesus was making while he was up in Caesarea Philippi, and he's trying to get the disciples to understand really who he is, and Peter makes that great confession. But then Jesus responds in Matthew 16, verse 18, he says, and I tell you, you are Peter, you're a little rock, a little pebble, and on this rock, this big rock, this foundational rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So the spiritual house calls for a cornerstone to be Jesus. He's the cornerstone. He's the one that sets everything in motion. All right? And the rest of us then are built upon Him. We don't set the standard. He does. So we have to conform to His design, His plans, His architectural blueprints. So... Peter says here in verses 6 through 8, it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, that stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's still the cornerstone, right? But it's not just the cornerstone, it's the one that's in their way and they're going to trip over it to get to wherever they think they need to get. So he says, he says, they're a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And no, that, that word, he says, is that this cornerstone is chosen and it's precious. It wasn't just some ordinary stone that God was going to use, but one that was specific according to his plans even before, he says, the foundation of the world, Christ was determined to be the one in whom we would build our lives upon. Now he uses this word that's translated cornerstone, but it can also be translated capstone or keystone. And sometimes you have to look at the context to figure out which one it's talking about. Well, obviously if you're stumbling, then it's not going to be the capstone, which is that beautiful ornate thing on top. For you to trip over that, it's, it's kind of out of place. It would have to be off the building. The keystone is, is what ties in an archway, and it's that one in the middle. Have you ever watched the St. Louis Arch being built? And they built it from both sides coming up, hoping that they were perfect in their measurements, and they would join together, and finally that last piece was put in place? The keystone. But they can't trip over that. So the reference has to be that he is the cornerstone. So if he is the cornerstone, it is the piece in which everything else is going to be measured by. So its location is governed where the building would be and in what direction its walls would extend. Our reaction to the stone divides us into two classes, those who believe and those who don't. Rejected brings to mind the image of a group of builders who rejected a certain stone for which they think is not suitable for the building, so they just toss it aside, all right? Because, you see, Jesus did not meet the spiritual specifications for their kingly priest that they were looking forward to in Messiah. See, so they rejected him. They wanted a, a political powerhouse. They wanted a, a, a continual earthly dynasty that was going to rule dominion over every other enemy that they had. But that's not the kind of house that Jesus has in mind. God's blueprints, God's designs 
was rejected by the religious leader of that time. And so God rejects their rejection by raising up Jesus back to life even after they kill him and then putting him at his right-hand position in power and authority and placing everything under his name in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Jesus becomes a stone over which unbelievers stumble. And so men choose of their own free will whether they're going to be a believer or an unbeliever. And if they choose to be an unbeliever, their rejection of Jesus as their Savior becomes the cause of their ruin. He uses that word offense. The Greek is scandalou, scandalon, where we get scandalous stuff, all right? It's, it's a word that is regularly used to, to, uh, of the trigger that springs a trap. So we th- Jesus is a trap. Oh, that's what he's saying here. I mean, we need to be sure of that. He, he's a snare. And most men do not let the rock alone simply by passing it by or ignoring it. When they want to get rid of it, they pick it up and they toss it out of the way. And they're still doing that to Jesus today. Those who do not want to believe in him, they can't just leave Jesus alone. We see it in our culture today. They've got to attack him. They've got to belittle him. They've got to put him down. They've got to harass him and his church over and over again. Even though that Christ has never done anything to them, they just cannot leave it alone. And so just by seeing who he is, he becomes a snare and a trap for them. And they bite But the problem is, they're going to lose in the end, and they stumble. See, people through the years who reject Christ, they feel compelled to take a shot at Jesus, even in their passing by. Verse 8 says, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. I mean, they've heard the word because it was preached to them. It's been displayed before them, but they have chosen not to believe. They deliberately refuse the invitation of Christ to come and follow me. A man's destiny is not determined by chance or by accident. God has set certain laws into motion, and a man's destiny is not determined by that arrangement. A man's destiny is determined by the arrangement that he has set in motion. So let's Let's kind of look at it this way. Observe the effects of sunlight has on, on different objects. The sun can melt wax, but it hardens clay. The Word of God, the Son of God, has a similar effect. For some people, it, it melts their heart. And for others, like Pharaoh, it hardens it. See, God's eternal plan, which has one destiny, and he speaks of that early on in chapter 1, verse 7, and it's for, to bring him praise and glory and honor. That's what the world is created for. It's for him, not for us. And for those whom he approves, remember what it was said about being chosen according to the foreknowledge of God early on, back in verse 2 of chapter 1? Well, he's got a plan for us that we're going to be able to worship him and bring him honor and glory and praise. But those who are disobedient, who reject him, there's another alternative. 
And they're the ones that are really thrown onto the garbage heap and who are useless. God's house was no longer to be a temple of stones built upon a mountain in Jerusalem. Those stones are everywhere. But his plan was a clear contrast to the Old Testament having a temple in one location. For now, the temple is a living, animated being. It's you and me when we put our faith in Jesus. And it goes around the world. It doesn't matter that they are dispersed and scattered, even though he calls them the chosen and the elect, but they are, they're not in one location. They are everywhere around the world. We are supposed to be subduing the world with his word. And wherever the Christian goes, the temple of God resides. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 17, it says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a ward. And if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through the fire. Do you not know, he says, that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Do you think they're ready for persecution? Well, the church is built by these specifications and that's what we need to do. It's the final thing here. So according to the architect's design, we need to build by the specifications that he lays out for us. I mean, the idea about a priesthood of believers was implied in verses 9 and 10. Listen, it says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And all the words that are taken in verse 9 are taken from Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. But he's kind of rearranged some of the orders there. And it's a passage where there's a series of collective nouns that are used, and all of which are in the singular tense, indicating that they're used in the Old Testament to describe Israel, the house of God, the people of God. But Peter changes this meaning now into identifying it's not Israel as the nation, but it is this spiritual Israel, the spiritual people of God. He makes reference to that, Paul does in Galatians chapter 6, verse 16. We are a chosen race. No matter what everybody says, and I hear about all the race baiting that's out there and the critical race theory and everything that's out there in our common culture today, there are but two races. And you're going, hold it, what do you mean? I thought, really, there's one race, isn't there? No, there's two. There's the chosen race, and then there's the one who's condemned. Two types of people, that's it. Those who put their faith and their trust in God Almighty and Jesus, His Son, and those who don't. 
So we are this chosen race, and we are the chosen by God. And it's this the fourth time, the last time that Peter uses that word chosen here in, in, in his letter. He used it earlier in chapter 1, verse 1, when he spoke about us being the elect or the chosen. He talked about it in verse, chapter 2, verses 4, and in verse 6, and now here in verse 9. And it collectively means that we are chosen people of God. All of us are. Now, the reference to Christ being rejected cornerstone was in connection with his parable about the, the tenants in a vineyard. And the master had gone away and they were living there. And, and, and they started just beating up people. Finally, he sends his one and only son there. And what do they do to him? They kill him also. They kill the owner of the vineyard. They kill his son because they think now, since we've killed him, we get it all. Wrong. They don't. But as Jesus is telling that parable, he concludes it with a little twist as he's speaking to the chief priests and the Pharisees. And so he says this in Matthew 21, verses 43 through 44. He says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Peter is now writing to this nation, this chosen race, this holy people, and it's evident that they are full of value and worth, and they're royal, and they're tied to their faith in Jesus Christ. So he says you're a royal priesthood, a kingly priesthood, this, this word that he uses. And it's, this idea is drawn out of Exodus 19 as well. He says, now therefore if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commands, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So we know that the people of Israel, as Moses is coming off of Mount Sinai, God has just told him, these people you brought out of Egypt, these people who are collectively coming together to follow me, these are going to be my people. These people are Israel. And Peter is saying now, even Israel has rejected the cornerstone. And so God is building a new house. He's building a new people. He's building a new people who are His chosen people, those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. They are a holy nation. Remember, holy means set apart. It means separated, different. It means separated from other nations and consecrated by God to be His. And although as exiles... They're scattered around in the dispersion because of the persecution that's taking place among the, the nations. He says, in a special sense, Christians nevertheless constitute the Lord's special people, a people for His own possession. We no longer belong to ourselves, but we belong to Him. We are His property. He has purchased us. He has been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting how very ordinary things take on a new value when they are possessed by somebody who is famous. I mean, you can go to any museum and you'll see clothes there, you'll see furniture, you'll see items that they've had, and they're just normal, ordinary things. But as soon as you connect that ordinary thing to a special person, the value immediately skyrockets. That is the same thing that happens to us. Though we are ordinary... We have been marked, we have been stamped because we are possessed now as the property of God. And so we now have great value and dignity 
royalty, holiness because of him. I mean, the difference is amazing. People, we have a special purpose as the church of Christ. We are saved in order that we might serve him and others. I mean, that's what a priest does. He doesn't just sit down and quietly contemplate, you know, who he is and and do nothing while he's there. He gets up and he works. And we have an evangelistic function in our priesthood, in our function as service. We are to proclaim to the world Jesus Christ. Not our own qualities, not our own uniqueness, not our own superiorities or our own majesty, because we really are nothing. But it's all about Him. We are just one block in this new spiritual temple in which He is building. We are a part of the whole. And if we're missing, He recognizes it. You, You wouldn't build a house and then just leave a hole in it with nothing there. And it's like, well, what's that for? Well, the other part didn't show up, so we never put it in. No, you, you don't. You go find the other part, you buy a different, you put it in there. You, you just don't leave it empty. And you have to remain in this house. Because he is the one who is building it, and he's using us question comes to you, do you want to be a part of that house? Or do you want to stumble your way through life? It's going to be your choice. You are the material that jumps into the cart rather than the guy picking you out. He knows what he wants and he sees you and he's gone there, but now you've got to make the choice. Am I going to, am I going to disobey him or am I going to obey him? Am I going to let him use me any way he wants? Even though I feel like maybe I ought to be a chandelier, he wants me as a doormat. You've got to be available. You've got to be willing to be used.